You're listening to episode 15 of the STEM space. How do you address students' misconceptions? Should we emphasize their incorrect beliefs about science subjects? Stay tuned, you're about to find out. Welcome to the STEM space, hosted by Vivify co-founders Claire and Natasha. Two aerospace engineers turned educators, sharing our passion for all things STEM. Check us out at vivifystem.com. How is your STEM class doing? I know you've got a lot going on. Yes, and it's going really well overall. Uh, there's just been some challenges with a few of my classes that I'm just kind of struggling with. And I don't know if it's because of where my kids are and how the year ended last year and they're just not ready or if I'm challenging them too much. So for example, in first grade, we were talking about cars. I'm introducing them to the concept of a simple machine, but that's, uh, that's above them. But just kind of tell them how you know, wheels work and getting them the concept of if a car is on a hill, it's going to roll down. Can you make it roll down faster if maybe the hill is um, at a steeper angle? or if you add more weight to the car. So just kind of giving them some basics just to intuitively help them along in understanding how the physical world works, right? So I had read them the book, If I Built a Car, which is a, an amazing book and it's really fun. And then I had them draw a design of their dream car and they had a lot of fun with that. And then I had toy cars on a ramp and I had them race each other. And before they would race, I said, well, Let's vote on which car we think is going to go faster down this ramp. And that was supposed to be kind of a trigger of, hey, we talked about if something's heavier, it, can you tell which car looks like it might be heavier? Something like that. Well, it turned into this big fight because there's an odd number of students. And so one student had to go twice and it wasn't fair. Oh, no. Everybody flipped out. They only <laughs> cared about which car they got to race. I was like, it doesn't matter. So, and then there was this big struggle because uh, next week they are going to be design, actually building their dream car based on their designs that they did. And so that makes me think, are they able to create in this way? Is that too advanced for them to be able to come up with an idea and actually make it with their hands? Does everything have to be fair? Can they work in teams or do they need to be individual so that they can take their own project home. I've had struggles with that and I had had that same issue in my second grade class last week. They made the UV light shelters in pairs and only one of the students in each pair could take home their design, right? There's only one. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know, just decide on who's going to take it home. And I even offered, hey, if, if you're not taking it home, you can have a bag of supplies to take home and you can build another one. Well, when I started saying, one of you has to take it home. Then there was a big argument, right? And so then I introduced, well, you can take home your own supply kit. Then there was a big argument again, because <laughs> then it's not fair that they also get to make another one. Like, well, goodness, like, <laughs> can't make everybody happy. So I was thinking back to last week's podcast, where we talked about how a kid's biology is one of the reasons possibly of where they are and being able to understand things or understand abstract concepts. Should they be able to share things the way that they do 
at age seven. Do we need to make it fair for them? Can we challenge them with the engineering design challenge when they are under eight? <laughs> right. What do I do, Natasha? <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot to unpack there, Claire. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> but I'm glad you see this as a safe space to vent because <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of teachers across the country just venting right now with everything going on. But okay, so first I want to say I love the activity with the cars. So that's actually perfect for what we're going to talk about today where you had the students predict what was going to happen when the cars went down the ramp because they were different weights. Um, but your question was more about that just went off the rails. Like you had a really great science example or activity to go, but then they just lost it because they were not able to self-regulate their behavior. And that's one of the things that I was learning about in uh, this developmental learning theory or self-regulation, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer that I can come up with is you just have to keep modeling it and doing it in small chunks. And so maybe not having every activity be a team activity because you'll probably go crazy, <laughs> but they need an opportunity to learn it. So it's not beyond what they're capable of. They're gonna have, maybe they've never had this opportunity in other classes. So they're probably used to just sitting at their desk, listening to the teacher, raising their hand. Like they've learned those skills. They've learned how to sit still. They've learned how to raise their hand. Now they've got to learn how to work together. and. It's up to you to teach them, unfortunately, <laughs> if the other teachers <laughs> haven't learned. And I imagine if some of these kids are single, like only child, they might not have had that skill with siblings. Um, so I bet some students are better than others at sharing and, you know, seeing what's fair, what's not fair. So I don't know if that helps, but that's all I could think of. Yeah, definitely. And I know that that has helped with my older students who I've been able to do a lot of the teamwork challenges like icebreaker challenges at the beginning of classes. I just haven't had that much time. My classes are shorter and I only see them once a week with the younger kids. So I probably should just devote more time to focusing on teamwork than diving into challenges. Yeah, and that's what we talk about the three stages of STEM. Stage one is spent, you spend a lot of time on stage one in the younger grades. And what week of school are we in? I mean, we're just still in the beginning of school, right? Mm -hmm. And so you haven't had that time to model those behaviors. Um, probably what they're doing well is what they know from previous years. And so this class is really new. Isn't this the first time they've had a STEM class? Yes. They had mm -hmm. to work together. Yeah. So this is totally new for them. And I'm surprised they're doing that well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, good. <laughs> hang in there. You can do it. <laughs> Thanks. All right. So how so, was your week? Well, um, we just had a midterm. That was fun for my grad class. And for my work, um, we just launched our Space Club program. If you're following us in our newsletter, this is World Space Week. And so we just happened to also launch a virtual Space Club program. Um, so if you want to know more about that program, we'll drop the link in the show notes. But yes. for my class, where we left off last week was developmental learning theory. And I had a teaser and I said, you're doing everything right. You're teaching these um, abstract concepts with like a physical model, something hands-on, something they can relate to that's familiar. And then they're passing the exam and forgetting everything and still holding on to some wrong ideas. And you're like, what am I doing wrong? Like what's going on? Well, in science, we have this challenge of misconceptions. 
And so if I were to ask my toddler, you know, how does light work? Or why do things drop when I, when I, like she's sitting in her chair and she drops something, how does that work? Kids as young as her, she's two, come up with their own ideas of how the world works. And when they enter school, they are really emotionally attached to those ideas. And sometimes they're really crazy. Like maybe they, she thinks the lights from some monster in the sky, you know, like they can have <laughs> some like crazy ideas. And if we don't understand what those ideas are when they come into our classroom, we're going to have a really hard time teaching them anything. And so a few things happen. So if she comes into a science class, the teacher tells her something and she still has her own idea. One, she might just completely reject the teacher's idea and say, that's wrong. I like my better. She might accept the teacher's idea, say, okay, that sounds interesting. I'll write that down on the test. And then she separates what she believes to be the real world, her own experience with the classroom science world and keeps mm -hmm. those two separate buckets of knowledge. And so when you graduate high school, you might still keep those two buckets and you just dump everything you learned in science class and you stick to those like initial ideas you had about how things work. So that's what constructivist learning theory is about, is trying to understand what do these misconceptions or our way of thinking when we walk into the class, how does that impact us? Because when we were doing developmental learning, our prior knowledge is actually useful. Like when you teach math, for example, if you know how to count, that's going to be really useful for algebra, right? It's not going to mess you up. It's only going to help you. Um, you're not going to have a lot of wrong misconceptions about trigonometry, right? <laughs> Usually you're kind of a blank slate there. It's a very new concept. But with science, you know, I talked about light, or if we're talking about how plants grow, kids are like, obviously they're eating the soil. Like that's how plants grow, right? <laughs> they're not connecting, you know, photosynthesis with the sunlight and all the elements in the air. They don't think about that, right? And so trying to get them to really understand these concepts when they have that prior knowledge is why science can be so hard to teach. That's amazing. So, yeah, that makes sense. So I thought what would be useful is to go through a couple scenarios. And this is actually going to bring together constructivist learning and developmental learning in some actual practical examples. So you can talk about these learning theories and they don't tell you how to teach. They just tell you how kids learn. It's our job as educators to take that and make it something useful. So they can just inform our teaching, but you can't say, I am teaching constructivist learning style. Like that's not a thing. It's just telling you how a kid learns. All right, so let's do an example on volcanoes. So this is a fifth grade example, which is, you know, late elementary. Sometimes it's considered middle school topic. And so your standards are wanting you to teach volcanoes are powerful geologic features that result from molten rock lava near the Earth's surface that is forcefully moved to the surface from heat and pressure below the Earth's surface. As the lava cools, it forms new rock. So I have four examples of how you could start this unit on volcanoes. And now I'm going to put you on the spot, Claire, and you're going to pick one. You ready? Okay. So option one, you can show a video of volcanoes erupting around the world, followed by a cross-sectional animation of a volcano in action. Two, you can do the classic paper mache um, activity with baking soda, vinegar, and food coloring to simulate the eruption. Three, you can read in a textbook about volcanoes and how they work and show a picture. 
and four, you can have students work in groups to write how they think volcanoes work and what the insides might look like. Hmm. Okay. Gut reaction would be to do the baking soda and vinegar for kids to see the explosion. But I'm also, I, I also always like to show videos. So I would usually start with the video and the animation so they can see what it looks like in the real world. And then we simulate what happens. Yeah, that's what I would do. So the most teachers actually do that paper mache activity mm -hmm. because you're thinking, and we learned in developmental learning, okay, it needs to be hands-on. It needs to be something they can feel, they can see. But what that paper mache is teaching us is that a chemical reaction is what causes a volcano. Mm -hmm. so everything about the experiment is totally wrong. All it's <laughs> doing is creating these misconceptions of how a volcano works. And so they walk away actually learning absolutely nothing about volcanoes and have wrong ideas instead. And so that's an example that my professors brought up a lot as like, this is a classic science experiment that you should never do. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, I remember doing that in middle school. <laughs> So that one's actually not one to ever do. And the video though is a great one to start with. So showing them the video, showing them to, we talked about the 5E learning cycle. So that's mm -hmm. a great engage activity. It's really the closest you can get to a more concrete you know, representation. We can't take them to Hawaii to experience a volcano. So it's really the second best. You're not gonna be able to smell it. You're not gonna be able to touch it, but at least you can see it and how it's erupting and how it looks really hot. And then following that up with the cross-sectional, they can really dive in and understand it further. And another good option is actually the last one and having them work in groups, because that's where you can see their thinking. So when they're working in groups and they're trying to do like a label a diagram or something on how volcanoes work, you can really get some insight into, do they already know about volcanoes? Do they have wrong ideas? Do they think it's baking soda and vinegar, creating a volcanic reaction? Um, so that's how you should approach a unit is how can I make it the most concrete example that's correct? And that's not gonna promote misconceptions. Yeah, that's really good. And so I was kind of offended by the idea of having students write out what they already think because that makes me think, oh, well, I don't want to reinforce incorrect information. So I've, I think I listened to a podcast before by Veritasium. Do you know about yeah, uh, yeah. that guy? Yeah, YouTuber. And he actually did his grad school uh, thesis on misconceptions. And he talked about how you are supposed to approach changing these misconceptions. He said it isn't just to do like a direct 180 where you're like, nope, that's wrong this is the right answer, but you do have to embrace their misconception somehow and then redirect it. And so I guess that's what that would be doing is you got to exactly. find out what they believe first before you can mm -hmm. continue on. Yes. Yep. And so, yeah, you got it exactly. And so we worry that by having the students state the misconception, they're going to really believe it and that's going to make it worse. But mm -hmm. what constructivist learning tells us is they need to know what they're thinking. Oftentimes kids have ideas about the world that they don't even understand they have. And if you can't connect that thinking to what you're doing in class, they'll never make that connection themselves. So they'll keep those two buckets of knowledge. Well, this is what I really think. And then this is what my teacher tells me. And so one strategy is the students should become aware, vocalize and commit to that idea. 
So you can do this by voting, for example, when we do the, our unit on the moon, we'll ask, a, we'll make a statement. Remember doing that? And the kids will go to a corner of the room and say, you know, is this the earth that is the largest planet? Whatever the activity is. So they're committing to that idea before you get into the unit. And so don't feel like you're making it worse. You're actually making it better because you're, they're vocalizing what that wrong idea is. Now your job is to unravel that and take them towards that new idea. But you, this is where direct instruction or lecturing doesn't work. You can't just tell them something and they'll just accept it as fact. You really have to connect it to their own experience, their ideas, and work towards that new concept. Perfect. That makes me feel better about how I actually run my classes from third through sixth grade is every Thursday we start out with they have to vote on some sort of question. So for example, this Thursday we are doing roller coasters and space club. And so their question that they had to vote on was what shape is the loop of a roller coaster in? Is it circular or is it more of a teardrop? And so uh, it's really interesting because most of them think it's a, it's an actual circle and it's not, but mm -hmm. then we kind of get in the physics, but that's too advanced for them. But just to kind of break, start to break down those mental images and misconceptions in a way that's more emotionally involved, I feel like mm -hmm. is more impactful than just telling them. Exactly. So that's almost exactly what our professor did in a couple classes ago she had us draw the earth orbiting the sun and what we thought the shape of the orbit looked like. And then as a class, we tried to decide how could we prove which orbit was accurate? What kind of data should we collect? And so most of us were like, well, what if we collect temperature data from different places on the earth? And she's like, I have that data. So she showed us the data and then we started mapping it. And so she walked us through where we were leading the investigation and she was giving us data from different sources. And we eventually came to our own conclusions like, oh, that's what the orbit of the earth looks like. And so I thought that was a really great example of you start with what is your idea and then how do you prove it? That is awesome. I might use that question. That's a good one. Yeah. So let's do one more scenario and see what you think. So pretend you're walking around your classroom and you're monitoring groups of students working. So they are testing ideas about the elements needed for a habitat of pill bugs. And what are pill bugs? Roly polies, I think. I think so, I'm not sure. <laughs> That's what we call it in the South. <laughs> Perfect, all right, some kind of animal. And one group is testing the impact of humidity. So you ask the student, and you're trying to figure out what their thinking is, and she says, I think humidity is really important. The pill bugs always go towards the side of the container with high humidity. And she's right. She's absolutely right. That was the answer you were actually looking for and what you wanted them to learn. So how do you respond? One, you say, that's right. And you keep observing and move on to the next group. Option two, say, great, you're right. Now what will you test? So you get her to generate the next test that she will do. Three, say, hmm, that's interesting and you stay really non-judgmental and you move on. And then four, why did your group decide to test humidity? We listen to her response and ask more questions about her thinking. Ooh, that is a hard one. I would probably go with B, the second one. The, when you say you're right and then you ask them to figure out what they're gonna test next. So what do you think about the first one just saying that's right? 
why is that one not good? I just feel like that just kind of ends it and doesn't give enough. I don't really know. <laughs> I just don't like that kind of commitment into saying that, <laughs> yep, that's it. You're done. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. And part of this question was you're trying to understand their thinking. And by just saying, great job, that's right. And you keep going. Well, how did they come up with that answer? You know, get dig more into their thinking of how they decided to test humidity. So I agree with you. I don't like the first one. You said, great, you're right. Now what will you test? I think that's a really good answer um, because you're pushing them to keep moving. Because I imagine if you're just like, mm. great, and walk away, they might just check out and be like, we're done. That's yes. all we had to do, right? Mm -hmm. The third one is pretty good because you're like, hmm, that's interesting. So you're showing some kind of engagement. Now, this one, we could point our audience to our podcast on praise and using mm -hmm. praise in the classroom. So I won't dive too much into that, but we want to have our students be self-motivated and wanting to explore and discover and we want to generate this curiosity. So by having them rely on us saying, great job, keep going, is kind of taking away from that. So that's why I don't like that answer. And then the last one is actually my favorite. Why did your group decide to test humidity? I think that's really getting into her thinking. So I would say both of ours are right. I mean, I don't know if there's a right answer to this, <laughs> as long as you can support why you're doing it. But I would say having some kind of follow-up question that really gets at their thinking is how I approach them. Yeah, that's really great. I, and I have a hard time figuring out how to not praise my students, but um, encourage them on the tracks that they're in without having them give up. And so often my vocalization is different than my body language. So they'll give an answer and I'm like shaking my head and like smiling really big, but then also saying, tell me more, you know, like, I'm not going to tell you that you did awesome. And that's exactly right. Cause I want you to keep going, but I do also mm -hmm. want you to know that you are doing a great job. Yeah. And what we had talked about was having specific praise is good, but the best praise you can give is using their answer. And so mm -hmm. that's when they feel validated because in this example, you're like, you can say, great. Now, how are you going to test humidity further? what's the next thing you're going to test? So you're validating what they did is correct. And you can do that in a full group discussion. If a student throws out an answer, you could, you know, take that answer and then ask another question. And so that's where I find the best way of praising students is using their thinking. They feel involved, then they're engaged and curious and they feel really good. Perfect. So that was just kind of a real high level view of some of these learning theories. The one we're talking about tonight in class is social learning theory. So what I've gotten so far is it's really the classroom environment and language and all of these extra things that impact learning. So, so far it's been in our brain, what is happening in a student's head. This is more of a social aspect, a lot about working in groups and then the impact that the teacher can have to support the student learning. So we can get into that one next time. Looking forward to it. But wait, I couldn't let this episode go without sharing a blooper. So she wanted us to draw the orbit, the sun orbiting the earth and what that looks like. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have to leave that one. <laughs> speaking so of misconceptions. Speaking of misconceptions. <laughs> All right, we'll try that again. <laughs>